we looked so far at verses 1 through 35, and it's uh, one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of Scripture. Daniel gave that 537 uh, B.C., and uh, he was recording over 500 years of history. And the two commentators counted up the different uh, detailed prophecies in the first 35 verses. There's a hundred, a little over 135 detailed prophecies, every one of which uh, can find uh, historical fulfillment if you, if you read the, the histories. And so it ought to encourage our hearts that God not only knows the end from the beginning, He controls the end from the beginning. Amen? Uh, he is a God that we can trust in the most dire of circumstances. And over and over in this chapter, we have that affirmation that these things were appointed by God. Look at verse 29, for example. It says, at the appointed time, he shall return. Uh, look at the end of uh, verse uh, 35. It says, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed uh, time. God has written time and history uh, without any error long before that occurred. And the, 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 the persecutions that were predicted back then were certain and sure, and we can trust God that the future, including the, the, the promised victories for the church in the future, are certain and sure as well. Now, in verse 36, we've come uh, to the first part that's really controversial amongst evangelicals in, in chapter 11, and we start to part company with... Um, uh, some people that uh, I dearly love, uh, great exegetes in the Lord, and so I want you to realize uh, this is an area uh, that is not um, something that I'm absolutely 100% dogmatic on, but it's pretty hard not to be <laughs> after studying it. Um, I really am convinced that um, uh, the interpretation I'm going to present before you is the only one that really fits. A lot of the commentaries that I've consulted have said there's nothing in history that, that fits this interpretation, and so it has to be a, a future uh, antichrist. And they admit that verses 1 through 35 is linear, progressive history, just one chain of events that's linked together. And uh, yet they say between verses 35 and 36, there's a 2,000-year gap. And it's the same gap that they've put in the previous visions, and we've seen before that there is irrefutable evidence against that gap earlier. And even though there's not as strong of an evidence here, I think that um, based on all of the visions going together, there really cannot be a gap of 2,000 years. Let me read briefly what Philip Morrow had to say on this passage. He said, The strongest magnifying glass would fail to reveal the slightest indication of any such break. But on the contrary, every item of the subject matter of verses 34, 35, and 36 is connected with the one which precedes it by the conjunction and. On the other hand, we find strong reasons for the view that the prophecy is just what it appears to be, namely, an outline in continuous historical form of the main events of the latter days, that is to say, the second term of Jewish national existence. Now, we're not going to cover all of the different reasons why I believe there cannot be a gap there, but I do want to cover five of those, and this is important. It hugely affects your view of um, whether we're going to have victory in the future or whether we're going to have total disaster uh, in the future. Uh, it affects your view of, uh, of eschatology. So be Bereans, check me out, make sure what I'm saying is really based in the Scriptures, and I'll try to go through this uh, briefly, and then we'll dive into the passage. 
Five reasons why I believe there cannot be a gap of 2,000 years here. Take a look at verse 41, especially the second clause there. It speaks, it says there, they shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Uh, later on, as a part of the same time period, it speaks of those three people groups still being in existence, and yet we know, and you can look this up in Bible dictionaries, those three people groups have long since ceased to exist. Okay, now there were a few Moabites who survived into the 6th century, but the other two people groups ceased to exist by the 2nd century AD. So it is, as far as I'm concerned, this proof all by itself completely wipes out the theory that there can be a 2,000 year gap here because those three peoples do not exist now. They cannot exist in the future. Uh, this has to be something that was fulfilled prior to the 2nd century AD. Secondly, the form in which this prophecy is given is most naturally read as a continuous series of events. I mean, he says, then the king shall do according to his own will. It just seems like he's going on in terms of a, a sequential history. And most of the commentaries that posit a gap here say that's true. It appears as if this is a sequential history, but the reason we're forced to say that there's a gap here is because of that phrase in verse 35, until the time of the end. They say it's not the end of the world, you know, when uh, the events of verse 35 take place, and so there has to be a gap here. And so they posit uh, a great tribulation in the future rather than something that is past. And that brings me to my third point. Uh, we need to use the concept of the time of the end in the same way that, that Daniel did. And Daniel uses it to refer to the end of an era. For example, if you look at verse 27, you have the same language being used. It says, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And uh, every uh, premillennial commentary, and even some amillennials put a, a gap in there as well, uh, everyone that I've looked at agrees it's not talking about the end of the world. They say the context has to determine what end he is talking about, and it has to be the end of those kings or the kingdoms that are being referred to there. And I agree with him. But I say the context has to determine the same thing in verse 35. And the context was the Maccabees uh, that we were talking about last time, the Maccabees who had fought against Antiochus Epiphanes and in subsequent years uh, found persecution from other rulers as well. And I believe the end that he is referring to is the end of the Maccabean dynasty. The Maccabees ruled for many generations, and when the last Maccabee was destroyed, the, the it's usually called the Asmonean dynasty, or Hasmonean, but I'll interchange Maccabees and Asmoneans, uh, that was replaced, the Asmonean dynasty was replaced by the Herodian dynasty. So I believe that the king of verse 36 is Herod the Great, and I'll be explaining why he's not the king of the north or the king of the south, uh, because verses 40 through 45 indicate those two kings fight against him. He's in the middle. But uh, anyway, it's King Herod. But let's just, for the sake of argument, stretch this out as far as we can and say that it refers to the last thing that will be accomplished in the prophecy of chapters 11 and 12. Philip Morrow points out that the whole focus of this vision is stated several times to be Israel's existence in the land prior to their being exiled. For example, look with me at chapter 10 and verse 14, and you'll see the angels 
description of what this vision is all about before he gives the vision. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now if the whole vision refers to the latter days of Daniel's people of Israel, and if everybody agrees, verses 1 through 35 is something that's in past history, it really is a flying leap to say that the rest has to be referring to a, another latter days. Because there was a latter days of Israel in the land there, and I believe it ended in 70 AD. In the last phrase of chapter 12 and verse 7, it says there, uh, when all of this vision will be terminated, the things will be fulfilled. It says, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. When was Israel's power completely shattered? Well, I believe it was in 70 A.D. Now, there are good people who disagree with me on this, but this is the framework from which I'm, I'm going to be coming. Now, some people say, well, latter days, surely that's got to refer to, our, to ourselves. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of the passages, but there's more than a dozen, dozen references that use the, time, the phrases uh, time of the end, latter times, last days, latter days, and every one of them clearly refers to the times leading up to 70 A.D. It speaks of Christ being born in the last days. It speaks of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost being poured out in the last days. Many different references like that. I'll just read one. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So Christ's ministry was in the last days, well, it was the last days of the Old Covenant, the last days of Israel, the last days of the Temple, the last days of the sacrifices. Uh, that was what was being referred to. Now, even if you don't buy my argument, verse 35 refers to the end of the Asmonean dynasty, I think the furthest you could stretch it would be up to 70 A.D. So we've seen, first of all, verse 40 indicates that the prophecy has to end uh, sometime prior to the second century A.D. because Moab and Ammon and Edom are still around. Those people have been annihilated. They cease to exist. Uh, secondly, uh, it naturally reads as a continuous history. To put a gap there does not seem natural. Third, Daniel has used the same language previously to describe the end of an era, the end of the Babylonian era, the end of the, uh, the Syrian era. And it fits very naturally here to say at the end of the Asmonean era, it's going to be followed by the Herodian era. A perfectly natural. Fourth, twice the angel gives the parameters of this vision and extends only to the latter days of Israel's existence, not the latter days of the world's existence. There's a big difference between those two. Fifth, uh, just as a discussion of Rome following after Greece and Persia was true of the previous visions, uh, we have the same pattern here. We have uh, beginning with Persia, going on to Greece, and then you would expect that Rome would be discussed, especially since Rome had such a prominent part in all of the other visions. You wouldn't expect that suddenly he would dive off to some unknown empire in the future and skip over Rome. And I believe that verse 36 is speaking, beginning uh, Rome's um, prominence in the land. Uh, Rome at this point, I mean, excuse me, Israel at this point becomes a Roman province. And the king of the south in verse 40 is Antony. The king of the north in verse 40 is, um, is, is, is Caesar. 
And uh, really, um, uh, the, the king that verse 36 through 39 is talking about has to be different than those because in verse 40, the king of the south attacks him and the king of the north comes against him. So it cannot be any view that says it's uh, Antiochus Epiphanes or that says it's uh, Rome or somebody from Egypt does not fit the evidence here. This king is distinct from the kings of the north and the south. He's somebody in between. And who's in between? Well, it's Israel that, that figures there. So all of the evidence, I think, really does fit with uh, King Herod. And we're going to give a little bit of an overview of where we were last time, uh, beginning at verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, there's no controversy on this amongst evangelicals. Uh, they, they, they teach that this is the Maccabees who successfully fought against Antiochus Epiphanes, against uh, his generals, uh, uh, Apollonius, Saron, Gorgias, Lysias, and it occurs between 166 and 164 B.C., now, as a result, the temple was regained, it was cleansed, rededicated on Kislev 25. And uh, that's uh, some of the background for Hanukkah. Now, in subsequent years, there were more persecutions by some of those other, uh, those other kings uh, of Syria. And uh, verse 33 speaks of a passage of time. It says, they shall fall by, uh, excuse me, uh, they shall instruct many, yet for many days... They shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. You look in Josephus and you'll see during that Syrian period, there was a lot of persecution and many of those Maccabees did die, violent deaths, some of them by fire, um, the plundering of goods, exactly what it says here. And uh, that continues on, verse 35 says, until the time of the end, which could be... You know the time of the end of Israel and the land, but as I take it, it's the time of the end of the Hasmonean era in 35 B.C., and that's two years uh, after uh, Herod uh, the Great gains the throne. Um, in 35 B.C., Aristobulus is uh, removed. He's murdered by Herod, and the last legitimate... Um, uh, whatever you would call it, inheritor of the throne in Judea is removed. The last threat to his uh, rule is, is removed. And so verse 36 says, as a result of the end of this Hasmonean line, the last Maccabean was killed, it says, then the king shall do according to his own will. See, once Herod gains unrestrained power, he can do anything that he pleases. And you study the, the reign of Herod and you will see he does anything that he pleases. He murdered his... Uh, his most loved wife, the one he said he loved more than all of his other wives, he murdered her, uh, he murdered some of his sons, uh, he killed some of the princes in the land. This one was a total tyrant. There was no restraining of his power within Israel. Only Rome restrained his power, and we'll see how that factors into this passage. Um, what we're going to do is take a little bit of a time looking at the character and the deeds of this evil king. This is the Herod, by the way, who attempts to murder Jesus. You know, kills all of the babies in Bethlehem. Verse 44, we're going to see next week, refers to that. We're going to take all the way up to the birth of Christ next week. But what has happened down through these verses in chapter 11 is that Satan has tried to move the various empires to destroy the line of Christ. He tried to use Babylon, tried to use <clears throat> uh, the Medo-Persians, Medo tried to use the Greeks. He can't do it from outside, so Satan tries now to work from inside. 
Compare sometime, I'm not going to take the time to do it, but compare Revelation 12 and its description of who was motivating the destruction of Christ and the, the murder of the babies in Bethlehem. You'll see there it's described as the dragon doing it. The Gospels say Herod did it. This gives the behind the scenes. Herod was Satan-possessed. And um, so uh, verse 36 says, He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Now, if he's Satan-possessed, that makes perfect sense. If all of the gods are various demons that are regionalized and he is possessed by Satan itself, it's going to be obvious that he's going to be motivated to magnify himself above every god. Now, Herod grew up as a practicing Jew. He was half Edomite, half Jewish, but um, he outwardly gave honors to the people, but inwardly he really didn't believe in any God. Yeah, he was agnostic when it came to the supernatural, and uh, yet he very much sought to intervene both in the pagans' uh, religions within the empire as well as in the, uh, in, in the, um, uh, the true religion. For example, he exercised himself... Uh, his power not just in the civil realm, but in the church realm. He would promote and he would demote uh, high priests. Uh, he put, for example, his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, um, uh, to rule as, uh, as high priest, and then shortly after he murdered Aristobulus. And he did much the same, uh, promotions and demotions amongst the pagan temples in the land. The text goes on to say, he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. People say, well, how could that fit Herod? Did Herod really speak blasphemies like this? Wasn't he the one that built the temple? Yes, he did build the temple. Uh, plus, he built uh, many, many temples to the cult of Caesar all, all throughout the, uh, the land. Let me just give a number of ways in which he spoke blasphemies against the true God. I think his building of some of these magnificent temples to Caesar worship was clearly blasphemy. And he honored the pagan religions uh, that were represented uh, in, the, uh, in the land, even though he did not believe in them. Okay, He gave money uh, to these people, trying to, to keep them happy. Um, there is Strato's Tower, for example, magnificent temple to Caesar with a huge image of Caesar. Uh, he did the same when he placed the golden image on the temple, the golden eagle, that was a representation of Rome as the cult of Caesar. And it caused a near riot, uh, you know, amongst the Jews. Uh, some other blasphemies that he engaged in. He wanted to worship, he said to the wise men, this uh, baby Messiah that had come to be born. But his real heart's intent was to murder him. Now, if that was not blasphemy, I don't know what is. Um, another way in which he blasphemed God was to claim to be the Messiah. Have you ever wondered who the Herodians were? Well, the Herodians were a cult that sprung up amongst the Jews that thought that Herod was the Messiah, uh, a whole movement. And so here is a pretended Messiah seeking to kill the true Messiah. So there's various ways in both his words as well as his actions in which he did speak blasphemies against God. The text goes on. It says, And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Uh, Josephus records not only the amazing advance in power that Herod had, but almost miraculously so. And it may be as a, as a result of Satan's influence in his life or just God's protection because he needed the Herodians on the line uh, until Jerusalem was destroyed, and that's when the wrath was accomplished. The Herodian line um, uh, lasted against all odds right up to the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And that whole line prospered in persecuting the church. It was Herod the Great that not only tried to destroy Christ, but uh, slew all those babies, slew many prominent and righteous people in Israel. Um, it was his son, Antipas, who put John the Baptist to death. It was Herod Agrippa I who put James to death and imprisoned Peter. It was Herod Agrippa II who sent Paul in chains. Herod's dynasty prospered in its persecution of true believers right up until the wrath was accomplished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 37 continues. It says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, that would be Jehovah, nor the desire of women, that would be the Messiah, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above them all. Uh, some people say he was an Edomite. How could he uh, say that Jehovah was the, the God of his fathers? And yet Josephus uses exactly that language to describe him. F.F. F. Bruce points out that even though he was part Edomite and later abandoned the faith, he says, in growing up, he and his family were Jewish in religion, unquote. And so Herod really fits uh, every point of that verse, his, um, uh, his forefathers' gods were uh, very literally, uh, God was very literally Jehovah. And he paid no attention uh, to the laws of God, nor to the desire of men. Uh, that's a phrase that refers, uh, scholars take it one of two ways. If you take the interpretation that this was Antiochus Epiphanes, they say, did not regard, um, oh, and the name slips me, um, anyway, there's some goddess, Totally slips my mind. Anyway, some goddess. Uh, and then others take it as referring to the Messiah. For years, countless years, women had prayed, Lord, what an honor it would be for me or one of my daughters to be the mother of the Messiah. And so many of them take it as a reference to that. But uh, Herod tried to kill him. Verse 38 continues. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Now, though he didn't believe in any supernatural god, he did respect and treat Caesar as being a god. Okay, And remember that this was the time when the Caesar cult began under Julius Caesar, um, where people began to treat Caesar as, as being a god. So far as I can find in any of my research, there is no other god to whom the title, the god of fortresses, could apply other than the cult of Caesar. And that's what I believe that it refers to. Uh, one author wrote this about Herod. This honor paid by Herod, first to Julius Caesar, then to Antony, and then to Antony's conqueror, Augustus, was one of the most conspicuous features of Herod's policy. He's saying what's described in this verse is one of the most conspicuous uh, features of Herod's policy. Hardly a town or a seaport was not without some temple that he had constructed to Caesar or some image uh, of, of Caesar for the Caesar cult. Um, he even demanded for a period of time an oath of loyalty at, at these images uh, to Caesar, as well as an oath of loyalty to himself. Um, and as I mentioned, he, he also had the audacity of placing that huge golden eagle on the temple, really, for the same purpose. Uh, very lavish in promoting the cult of Caesar, giving gifts to Caesar, all kinds of uh, vast sums of money that he gave, uh, according to Josephus. And yet he did not believe in these gods. Now, verse 39 and uh, we'll deal with this and go on to some of the applications, says, Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. 
and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now, this is the most difficult uh, section, especially the first clause, because it can be translated various ways, uh, depending on which translation you'll have. You'll see uh, some of these different interpretations. Uh, but I want to look at some of the different possibilities. If the New King James Version is correct, then it could mean, and I, I take it in this first way, it could mean one of two things. It could either mean that after Herod's flight from the Parthians, uh, when his uh, dad and his brothers were killed, after his flight to Rome, he returns in 39 B.C. with uh, an army composed of Romans and other foreigners, and he conquers the fortresses in the land, and specifically in, in 37 B.C., he conquered the fortresses uh, that were in Jerusalem. So that's one possibility. Or secondly, uh, there is uh, one person who says it could mean this. Now, just as Herod honored the god of fortresses, in other words, the Caesar cult, in other places in other fortresses, so in the same way, he would honor the Caesar cult in the temple of God where the two strongest fortresses were kept. And in fact, Josephus tells us that's what Herod was doing when he erected that golden uh, eagle uh, on the temple fortress. He was acting against that holy place, against that fortress. So it could mean either of those two things. I take the first one. If the American Standard Version is correct, and translating it this way, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. It could refer either to the initial invasion of Judea that I've mentioned, or it could refer to uh, using Rome to keep at bay various enemies like Cleopatra. If the New English Bible is correct, and here's their translation, he will garrison his strongest fortresses with aliens, the people of a foreign god, then this too fits Herod because the garrisons that he'd put in all of this huge long string of fortresses throughout the land were almost entirely made up of foreigners, uh, foreign mercenaries like the Gauls and the Thracians and the Germans. So I'm not exactly sure how to interpret that, that clause yet, but any way you interpret it, it does fit Herod's life. Uh, the rest of the verse, not really problematic. Herod certainly gained a lot of territory. He divided up the, the land for hire. He even gave some foreigners entire cities to keep a balance of power within the land. Um, I've already mentioned the idols, other pagan ways in which he promoted the Caesar cult, but Philip Morrow says this, We thus find that every item foretold of the king was completely fulfilled in the career of Herod, and that the record of this fulfillment has come down to us as an authentic contemporary history. So that's the meaning of the passage. And what I want to do right now is take a look at some applications. Uh, and I'm just going to skip over the first application, which is that the Great Tribulation is past. And I think there's a lot of application you can get from that. But a second one deals with our view of government. Any government official who was neutral to God in his office is going to tend to make government his God. I think it's a universal principle that built right into man is the need for a highest, uh, a highest authority. And if the highest authority is the government, then the government is going to begin to take on the characteristics uh, of God. Uh, there can be no neutrality. Verse 36 says, God's laws were not upheld by Herod. Instead, it says, the king shall do according to his own will. He imposes his will in the people. His will is the final law of the land. <clears throat> and uh, the rest of the verse indicates that unlike the Hasmoneans before him, he no longer, uh, even though he 
he respected and gave money to all of the different gods. All religions were treated equally. There was not uh, any longer a situation where it was one nation under the true God. Uh, he did not honor the gods in that sense of the fashion. There was more of a neutrality. And so verse 38 says, as a result, in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses. And that's always the way it is. The god of fortresses, the power of the state, becomes a substitute. Uh, Herod didn't believe in any gods, and ironically, he turns Rome into a god in the way in which he served him. His ideal was the centralization of the peace that Rome brought. Uh, he spoke of the Pax Romana being the absolute thing that they needed to pursue. Uh, Pax Romana was the, the peace of Rome. And so his ideal, the Roman Empire, became for him the savior, the peacemaker, the ideal on earth, the highest authority in his life. Here's Rushduni's comment on this verse. He says, the modern imperial state insists on neutrality towards God. But neutralism with regard to the imperial state and its goals is intolerable, an affront to the majesty of the divine state. No state can avoid making itself the divine touchstone of truth and character if it departs from the primacy of God and his word and law. The God of forces becomes the only God and the ultimate law. It is a coercive and imminent power that is deified. And I think it's only logical that that should be the case. See, the, the God of a nation can be told, you can tell the God of a nation by the laws of a nation. If the state is the one who determines the laws rather than God's word determining the laws, that means the state has taken on the characteristics of God. And you're going to find more and more of a messianic state resulting from that, including omnipresence, you know, in your life. Herod had spies in every city, every hamlet, every well. You could feel the government uh, everywhere. Uh, omnipotence. Herod was constantly trying to accrue more and more power, fortresses being built all over the place, and saviorhood. Uh, when uh, there were two famines, uh, he had to uh, sell all kinds of things and bring in wheat, bring in food from Egypt to feed the people. Uh, he began more and more to become a welfare state and so saviorhood. You can go through the attributes of God and you can see more and more of the character of God uh, being brought into Israel. But that brings us to the third application. Government assistance that's mentioned in verses 38 through 39 tends to uh, lead the government to more government control. State fills every nook and cranny, uh, just as Herod's presence could be felt in every home. In fact, Herod actually built homes for people. There were entire cities that Herod built where all of the homes were given away to people who were loyal to his cause, trying to maintain some balance of power there. But it could be felt everywhere. The state now is uh, felt everywhere. It's in education, in farming, in welfare, in retirement, in child care, medicine, money, business, art. I mean, you name it, the government is there. And when that happens, you've got a messianic state. The state has taken on the functions that God reserves to himself. And uh, I just recently, uh, it was this past week, Monday, Tuesday, was invited to go to a uh, supposedly a Christian meeting. It's called Christian Renewal, and um, it's not promoting the Christian ideal from the Bible, and it's not renewal because it's the same old socialistic policies that they're promoting, but they're wanting uh, us to promote more and more intervention by the government in some of the needs that the community has. And I just have absolutely no interest in that because the more government assistance you receive, the more government control there's going to be. Fourthly, Herod's firm belief in the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome alone could bring, 
and that Rome said nobody else could try to bring, Rome alone was supposed to bring it, I think has a one-to-one parallel with the kind of trust that our politicians have in the United Nations. And I'm not going to go very far with that. I think you can uh, look for the parallels yourself. The same problems and the same woes are going to come uh, to uh, the United Nations as came to that attempted uh, one-world peace as well. Fifthly, Christian nations can become just as tyrannical as pagan nations when they begin to rule in the same way that the pagan nations do. And I think we need to lay hold of this. Uh, You can see it in history. In Europe, some of the various Christian nations, when they began to take on, instead of following biblical law, they began to rule like the pagan nations did. It didn't matter. They were just as tyrannical as all of the pagan nations round about them. Now, at this time, uh, Israel was supposedly a Christian nation using the word Christian in a, a uh, uh, you know, the sense of being a true believer. Uh, and yet Herod was so enamored with Roman policy and Roman ways of doing things that he began to be the tyrant that Rome was. <clears throat> now, if you don't realize that there is such a thing as true biblical principles of government, one book that might get you started in looking at this is a three-volume set by Gary DeMar, it's called God and Government. Uh, very important that we, that we uh, study that and teach our children about that. But next week, we're going to be taking the next section, leading us all the way up to the time of Christ, uh, who alone is the Prince of Peace, who alone can bring about the kinds of, of solutions to political dilemmas as well as the personal, personal dilemmas that need to be brought. And it's my uh, prayer that we would not just have an outward affirming of Christ, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet the way we vote and the way we handle government affairs, we act as if he has no right to touch the government. Uh, it's, it's my hope that we will honor the Lord like the wise men did and not like uh, uh, Herod the Great did. Herod was not great. He was great in the eyes of the world because of his political genius. But he was not great in God's eyes because he failed to humble himself under God's law. Let's pray.